We are going to continue our study in the book of Luke. We're going through the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Colt's going to come on up and read for us. And so as we all do, will you please stand to give honor and attention to God's Word. And listen to God's Word for God's people. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go, do and, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It is your word, the word of the Lord. Thank you for the story of the Good Samaritan, a story that's familiar with, to us. Well, Lord, I pray that we have eyes to see this morning to speak it afresh to us. Lord, move us by the power of your spirit that we would have compassion on your image bearers that we would not walk by or walk over, but we would be sensitive to the Spirit, to those in whom you call us to serve and to love. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? But the better question is, am I a good neighbor? And that's what we hope to answer today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys, can go ahead and have a seat. Well, good. For companies, there's nothing like having a good marketing campaign, Right? Having that good slogan that just is ingrained in the listener's mind. I was watching college football this weekend, and it's like every commercial that came on, I could almost already tell and, and say the exact same thing that they're speaking to me about, right? All these slogans. They're just good marketing companies that, that, that we know when we see a certain logo or we see a certain you know, brand pop up, we know what's coming next. We know what the slogan's going to be. Let's, let's just see how ingrained it is in our minds right now. I'll say the slogan, and then you tell me the company name, all right? And we're going to start off with an easy one. Just do it. Nike. Nike. How about this one? The happiest place on earth. Disneyland, right. How about this one? They're great. Frosted Flakes, let's go. The best cereal there is, right? Frosted Flakes. I even pointed like Tony the Tiger, right? They're great. Let's go. How about this one? The ultimate driving machine. BMW, right, right. So we, we know this. Now, the Bible doesn't have marketing campaigns or slogans, but if they did, the text before us, it might go something like this. Like a good neighbor, 
A Samaritan is there, right? There you go. State Farm is there. You guys already reached out. right? But like a good neighbor, a Samaritan is there. Now, almost anyone in the church, if they would hear that slogan, they'd be like, oh, the story of the parable about the good Samaritan. And even a lot of non-believers, those that don't attend church regularly or know Jesus, would be like, oh, yeah, the good Samaritan. They know that story. Now, most of us would probably say that the story or the main question that Jesus is answering is, who is my our neighbor, because that's asked in the text, which is a, a good question. But I think Jesus is actually highlighting and proposing a better question, and that is, are you a good neighbor? Am I a good neighbor? And what makes a good neighbor? What makes a good neighbor is that we love and serve everyone in our circles of influence. So let's look at this a little bit more detail. First, we see a good question, a good question. Look at Luke 10 through 25 and 26. Luke 10, 25 says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, enter this lawyer. Jesus has been teaching. He's, he's turned his face to Jerusalem. He's walking with his disciples. He sent out the 72. He's teaching the masses. And then all of a sudden, this lawyer shows up and he asked him this question. Now, when we think lawyer, we think like, well, at least my, my generation, we think uh, Ruli Giuliani or Johnny Cochran, right? For some of you that are in TV crime dramas, you might think Harvey Specter, right? Or you might think, what's the other one? Jack McCoy, Law and Order. And maybe even some of you might even think Lionel Hutz, right? Who knows? But this is not a criminal defense lawyer. The lawyer here is an Old Testament scholar. He's an expert in the law. So think like biblical theologian. Think like seminary professor. He's an expert in the law. And this expert in the law of Moses comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. And we see his motive. It's not an honest question. This lawyer is trying to chip up Jesus. He's trying to discredit Jesus so they can get rid of him. And it says, verse 25, putting him to the test. So we see this is a trick question. And yet, even though it's a trick question, it's a good question. It's a very good question. In fact, it's a question that every human being that has been born since Adam and Eve has asked themselves this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, why is this a good question? Why has everyone asked this question who's ever been born? Well, the reason we find in Ecclesiastes 3.11, because eternity has been put in your heart and has been put in my heart. Apart from Christ, there is a longing that we all have in our hearts, inside of us, There's, that we want to belong to something, that we want to have significance. There's this longing. And this longing is not found within us, but it is something that comes from without, outside us. And we, we, we look for all different kinds of things to fill that longing, but there's only one that can fulfill that longing, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Augustine put it. He said this. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their hope in you or until they rest in you. Amen, Augustine. So it's a good question, even though it's asked with wrong motives. Now, notice Jesus doesn't answer the question, but he actually turns the tables on the, the expert and asks him a question. He says, hey, you're the expert. You tell me. Look at verse 26. What is written in the law and how do you read it? And the lawyer actually answers correctly. Uh, 
from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Look at verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength and with all of your mind. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he adds, and your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 19, verse 18. And Jesus says, hey, good answer. That is correct. You answer correctly, so do and live. Do this and live. Do this and obtain eternal life. But the do this is perfectly do this. And really at this point, even though this lawyer is trying to trip up Jesus, Jesus knows this guy hasn't fulfilled the law perfectly. He knows he's been separated from God. And so Jesus actually, his answer is extending an olive branch to him. He's extending an olive branch to him. Jesus' answer was meant to help the lawyer see his sin. To, to help the lawyer say, oh, I haven't kept the law perfectly. I haven't loved the Lord God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength. And I definitely haven't loved my neighbor like myself. I have failed in this. That's the, the, the answer that Jesus gives. That's the response he's looking for. And it's the same with anyone in here that apart from Christ, that we recognize that we can't follow the law perfectly. We all fail. We all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says there is none righteous, not even one. And if you guys remember back when we went through Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, when we came to the Ten Commandments, we talked about there was three uses for the Old Testament law for the individuals and for us. There's three uses. And the first use of the law was to show us our sin. The law, the, the Ten Commandments were used as a mirror to show us our inabilities, uh, our, our sin, our inadequacies to fulfill the law perfectly. And so when it says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the, the purpose was to show us like, oh, you're, you're falling short, Aaron. You don't. And it was to cause us to look again outside of our own abilities, our own work ethic, to something greater. Romans 3.20 says this, the law is good because it gives us the knowledge of our sin. Galatians 3.25 says, the law is like a tutor or a guardian pointing us to Jesus. It shows us our sin and then it points us to the Savior. And this is what Jesus was hoping would have happened in the lawyer's heart. He was hoping that the answer of go and do likewise was see the, the lawyer would be like, ah, oh, I'm falling short. And at that point, the lawyer would say, Jesus, I'm falling short. I can't do this. What should I do next? That's the, that's the hope that Jesus was going to be coming from the lawyer. And Jesus would have said at that point, I'm the one who supplies the remedy. I am the one who will make you whole. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one that you come to when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus was hoping for. And it's again the same for us today. Apart from Christ, none of us love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We fall short. None of us love our neighbor. That's apart from Christ. And even when we come to Christ, we still don't do that perfectly, right? And that's why we need Jesus and his justifying love that covers our sins, past, present and future. Well, unfortunately, again, the lawyer doesn't see his need. But again, what does he try to do? He tries to justify himself. And that takes us to the second question, a justifying question. Look at Luke 10, 29 through 37, verse 29. 
But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so we see probably a little bit of conviction happens to the lawyer upon Jesus' answer because now he's trying to justify himself. He's trying, again, he's trying to validate the way he treats everyone in his circle of influence. He knows he's falling short. And back then, the main thought in, in the Jewish circles was that the neighbor to the Jews was other Jews. Other covenant members of the covenant, of God's covenant people. It wasn't Gentiles and it wasn't certainly Samaritans. In fact, there was a saying that was going on in Jesus' day that they added or perverted to Leviticus 19. And Jesus makes mention to it in the Sermon of the Mount where he says, you have heard it said to love your enemies, I mean to uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. They added that phrase, hate your enemies on. And so the, the lawyer and Jews would say, this is good. I love my fellow Jews. I love my fellow covenant people. And I'm okay to hate everyone else. If I do that, I'm still fulfilling the law. And Jesus says, no, that is not it. Knowing this, we see Jesus says to the lawyer, it's, it's, it's time for a story. It's, it's story time. It's like, in, it's like when you're in elementary school and it's like, you know, it's story time. You go to the carpet, right? And so Jesus is calling this lawyer to the carpet for story time. And whenever Jesus goes into story time, story mode, you know he's about to drop some serious wisdom and knowledge. You know something big is about to come from Jesus' mouth. And this is what we see. The expert in the law, this lawyer, he's about to learn a valuable lesson from the original author of the law. That is Jesus. Jesus wants to expand the boundaries of this lawyer's understanding of who is his neighbor and who he's calling to love. Jesus wants to expand the lawyer's borders on who is his neighbor. And he starts it with a good story, and then he's going to ask him an even better question. So look at verse 30. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and he departed, leaving him half dead. Now we got a couple pictures of this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is literally going straight down. It's about a 17-mile mile path, a very familiar road to those listening to Jesus during this story. It's steep, it's rocky, and it's very, very dangerous. In fact, thieves and criminals would hide out in nooks and crannies uh, to uh, uh, ambush those travelers passing by, to ambush them, to steal, to, to kill, to take whatever they want. Here's a trail of it today, and this is the trail that Jesus uh, is talking about. And so one historian called this trail uh, the way of blood back in Jesus' day because it was so dangerous. And so this is the trail in which Jesus says this man, and most commentaries think this man is a Jewish man, where he gets jumped, stripped, and beaten to the point of death. And then on this trail, all of a sudden, three men come across this almost dead man. And he identifies him. Jesus identifies him. He says the priest. He's kind of like the Jewish elite Leaders. This is like the varsity squad of the priests. And then you have a Levites. This is like the, the priest's helper. They'd be like the, the JV team. They would come and help the, the priests do this. And then a Samaritan. Now, first, the priests and Levites, they see him. And what do they do? They, they pass by on the other side. Total avoidance. The question is like, well, why? Why do they do that? 
And, and the text doesn't necessarily give us the answer, so we can kind of surmise and we can use our minds and think like, well, why do we do that? Well, one, it might be wisdom. Again, this path is known as the way of blood. Uh, this path is known where robbers and thieves will, will jump you, will ambush you. So they're like, hey, man, this could just be some ploy. This could be just some guy playing possum and his buddies are behind the rock ready to jump us and get us. That, that could be entirely valid. Or it could be this. They don't have the time to help this man. It's an, this man would be an inconvenience for them to stop. Because the, uh, the law said you don't touch dead men. They, they could look at this guy, and he's, he's almost dead, and he looks dead. So like, man, I can't, I can't touch this guy or help this guy because then I would become ceremonially unclean. I just came from Jerusalem where I was cleansed, and now I'm going to my city to, to cleanse others. So if I, I touch this guy, then I, it's going to be an inconvenience. I got to go all the way back to Jerusalem. I got all the way back to the temple. I got to go through this seven-day process of repurification to go again. That could be a reason why. They just didn't want to deal with him because they didn't, it was, didn't have time. It, it would have been an inconvenience to them. Or it could be this. They were just hypocrites. Uh, the scribes in particular, I mean the Pharisees, uh, the scribes in particular, these priests, um, because they would proclaim and tell everyone, hey, this is how you keep the law. You love God and you love your neighbor. And so they would say it and they would proclaim it, but in practice they wouldn't do it. So they just speak straight out hypocrites. That could be a reason. So there's, there's a couple more. But then again, look at that verse 33. But then it says, but a Samaritan. In the original language, this is emphasized. It's an emphatic. There's the priest, there's the Levite, but then all of a sudden the Samaritan comes. The Samaritan is the one that actually has compassion and helps them. Now real quick, every time we come between a Samaritan and a Jew, we we have to kind of tell you the the relationship between them. And if you guys have been at the Crossing or any other good church that teaches the Bible and go through these numbers of scriptures, you understand that Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. They hated each other. In fact, what is the title over this portion of scripture in your Bible? In mine, it says the Good Samaritan. But if a Jew was picked up, they would say like, that's the wrong title because there's no such thing as a Good Samaritan, right? They would think like a Good Samaritan is a Dead Samaritan. So there's heavy animosity. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as bitter enemies. They were seen as half-breeds and heretics. If you're in the Harry Potter world, you'd see them as uh, half-bloods. They would be considered the half-bloods, right? Think about Matt Whitney taught in in Luke chapter 9 where the disciples get sent to the cities before them, the twelve. They get sent out. And Jesus says, hey, if they reject you, what are you called to do? Just take the shoes off your feet and dust them off, right? That's in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The apostles go. Well, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the apostles, and particularly James and John, they go, the disciples, they go to a city in Samaria. The Samaritans reject them. And what should be the proper response from James and John? Hey, just take off your shoes and wipe off the dust. But what is their response? Look at 9, verse 51 in chapter Luke. In Luke. It's like James and John say, hey, we just don't want to dust off our shoes. We want to what? We want to call fire down from heaven so you will make this city and the people in it a dust. You see the animosity, the hatred, but it goes both ways. Not only from the Jews to the Samaritans, but also from the Samaritans to the Jews. The feelings were mutual. The Samaritans were just as nasty to the Jews. They were known, as one said, as I read this week, they were known to desecrate the temple right before Passover, right before the Day of Atonement. What they would do is, is kind of just, they would take catapults and they would launch dead pigs into the temple courtyard where the blood would splatter and make everything unclean. 
And so that's how they would retaliate, the Samaritans. It was just brutal. And today they don't just laugh dead pigs, they launch rockets. We need to be praying for that area right now, don't we? So in other words, these two groups hate each other with a passion. And so the next words coming from Jesus in verse 33 would be shocking to the Jewish audience. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, when he saw him, had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And and notice something first. Before the Samaritan acted, what happened first? There was something internal that happened to him. He felt compassion. That word compassion is one of those words where he felt a, a, a love deep in his gut. It's like when we see something on the news about a child or something you know, dying too young or early or something bad happened to a child. We, we get this pit. We get this compassion. We get this love that's deep in our, in our gut. The, 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 the Samaritan had that in his soul. First, it's internal. He had this compassion that then caused him to act. And then notice all the verbs. Look at all the verbs. I mean, circle the verbs. Uh, verse 33, he, he saw him. He had compassion on him. He went to him. He bound him up. He poured oil on him. He sat him on his own animal. He brought him to the inn and he took care of him. So physically, I mean, the dude provided everything for him physically. And not only that, verse 35, provided for him financially. He took him to the inn and told the innkeeper, hey, I, I got to go away. I got some stuff to do, but I'm coming back. Whatever, whatever this guy needs, Take care of them, and I will pay for it. So this guy, this Samaritan, saw a need. Saw another person, another image bearer of God. Hurting, and he met that need. It disrupted his schedule. It hit his pocketbook. It might not have been the wisest decision for him to stop on this road, because it could have been a trick. He was making himself an easy target, but he did not care. He was motivated to help this guy. Which one of these three do you typically identify with? Which one of these three do you typically see yourself as when coming across someone who is in desperate need of help? Do you see yourselves more like the priests and the Levites? I don't have time to help this guy. Someone else will help him. It's just going to be an inconvenience. Or is it maybe the thought that someone's like, well, this guy must have made decisions to get him here, so someone's teaching him a lesson. I'll let him learn his lesson. Is that maybe some of your first thoughts? Or is it when you see a person in need, that it's, it's compassion, your heart goes out to him? Which person do you see here? And again, remember, the lawyer, the lawyer in this story is trying to justify his theology and how he treats other people. And what Jesus is trying to do is to teach him and those around him. He wants... Jesus wants again expand his borders on who is his neighbor with his story. But then also he asks this better question. Look at verse 36. Jesus asked this lawyer, which of these three, and this is what you want to circle and underline, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the lawyer, the one. Notice he couldn't even say Samaritan because there was such such hatred. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And then verse 37, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. That's the better question. Are you a good neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor to this individual? You could rephrase the question that the lawyer initially asked is, who am I called to love? 
Who am I called to serve? Right? The question is, who is my neighbor? The, the, the question could be rephrased this way. Who am I called to? To love, to serve, to give my time to, my talents to, my treasures to, to, to support. And Jesus says, everyone. Not just your fellow Jews, but Gentiles, Samaritans, even your enemies. That's who. And this is the answer that, again, Jesus gives in Matthew 5, 44. Again, these, the old covenant and, and bringing light to new covenant promises. Jesus answered, you are to love everyone, not just your fellow Jews, but even your enemy. This is the fulfillment of loving your neighbor. Therefore, lawyer, you expand your borders and go and love like the Samaritan. Well, the story ends. We don't we don't have the response of what the lawyer does. The story ends there. So we don't know what the lawyer's response was, but we can press into our response because the same question is for you and for me this morning. So our third point is this, the the right or better question. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Again, everyone is a neighbor. So the question for you or me is, are you a good neighbor? Are you a faithful neighbor? Or are you a bad neighbor? Now, again, this story, <clears throat> Jesus would have told, would have shocked the, the Jewish lawyers and all the Jews listening, because who is the hero of the story? The hero of the story is an enemy of the Jews. It's the Samaritan. I mean, Jesus could have just told the story like this. There was a priest, there was a Levite, and there was a normal Jewish dude who was walking down the, the path. And the normal Jewish dude is the one that helped this other Jewish guy out. That's the way Jesus could have told it. But again, he didn't tell it that because he wants them to expand their borders to not even who is a good neighbor, but are you a good neighbor? He doesn't. And there's been two main interpretations to this parable throughout history. One, like John Calvin and other most contemporaries, illustrate that this story is illustrating the highest moral ethic in the kingdom of God on how we are to treat other image bearers, and that's good. We are to treat other image bearers, regardless who they are, Jew, Gentile, friend, foe, uh, with the love and support the way that Jesus has treated us. So that is one way. But I tend to lean towards what some of the older commentaries uh, and pastors and priests say, guys like Arrhenius to Augustine to Matthew Henry and other contemporaries, they interpret this parable this way. Viewing it on this side of the cross, as was already alluded to by Dave, and we didn't plan it this way, but I'm glad the Holy Spirit is moving right here. That who do we identify with? We identify with as the one laying on the side of the road, beaten and dead. That Satan was our enemy. He is the one that has come and has robbed us. He is the one that has stripped us and who has beaten us and to leave us there for dead. The priests and the Levites represent the Old Testament covenant, the law of Moses coming. Uh, that they have no compassion on us or pity or power to help save us. But then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes. That good Samaritan. And again, apart from Christ, we are enemies with Christ. So, so Christ would be perfectly well in His rights to walk around us because we are His enemies. We are sinners. We want nothing to do with Him. But because of His great compassion, because of His great love for you and for me, He stops to help us. And not only does He help us, but He saves us. 
He puts all of our needs and all of our expenses on Him. And He makes the payment so that we can be healed, so that we can be made whole, so that we can be made secure. I think me, that's the way to look at this. I think there's several benefits to understanding the parable this way as we look back on this side of the cross. First, it answers the first question the lawyer asked. What was the first question the lawyer asked? What must I do to to, uh, gain eternal life? Well, if we look at it through this lens, we see it's not by our doing, right? There's nothing that we can do to earn our eternal life. We're imperfect. The law demands perfection for salvation, eternal life, and none of us, we all fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus has come and he has lived the life perfectly in your place and my place. He has done it for us. He is the one that has saved us from Satan and our ultimate enemy, death. He made the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me when he died on that cross for our sin. So one, it answers the first question, how do we obtain eternal life? We obtain it by looking to Jesus and what he has done for us. Secondly, it propels us to live by grace and not law. It propels us to live by grace and not law. It keeps us from self-righteousness. It keeps us from moralism. It keeps us off the treadmill of performance to earn our standing with the Lord. Oh, if I want to be right with the Lord, I got to love every single person that comes across my way that has a need. And if I don't, I fail. And it keeps us off the the, the treadmill of performance and self-righteousness and moralism. Listen, we understand that the only reason why we love God and we love our neighbor is because Jesus and God first loved us. Because he first loved us. That makes us and gives us the ability that takes us to number three, that we can be a good neighbor because there's a motivation that happens from inside of us. It's the compassion and love of Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts for those of us that are in Christ. We are good neighbors not to justify ourselves and to make ourselves feel good or to check a box. We are good neighbors to those around us because it shows that we have been transformed from the inside out. If you and I, if you have experienced the radical grace and mercy of God in your life from Christ Jesus, it changes you, doesn't it? It changes you. It changes your heart. It changes your passions. It changes your motives. It changes the way you see each other. Causes us to love one another. Causes us to, 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 to hurt with one another, to suffer with one another, to enter in and show one another compassions, and not because we have to, but because we get to, because we want to. Because something has happened inside of us. God has transformed us. And we have the idea of what we talked about in Luke chapter 7, that those who have been forgiven much, what? Forgive much. Those of us that have been forgiven much, forgive much and love much. Therefore, when we see other image bearers of God struggling, we are internally moved by compassion and love. And that causes us to enter in. We act. We do something. We serve with our time, our talent, and our treasure. So that's why I like that interpretation. So the question practically for us is this morning is, well, where do we start? 
How, how do we love our neighbor? Where do we start? It starts from within. It starts from our hearts, our, our internal drive to love. It starts with compassion. It starts with us bending our knees, seeing our need for a Savior, bending our knees to Christ Jesus. Then His Holy Spirit comes in, overtakes us. He gives us a heart of, uh, of flesh from a heart of stone that causes us to love our neighbor. And then it goes from the internal to the external. It motivates us. It moves us. And, and where's the first neighbor? Who are we first to love? It's in our own home. It's first and foremost in our own home. Sometimes when we think love neighbor, we think we got to go over to the, the Middle East or we got to go to Europe or South America and serve someone over there. No, it begins in your own home. One of my greatest fears when I got into ministry was that I would walk over my own family to serve somebody else. I, I didn't want to be that pastor. Some of us have seen those pastors, those ministers that that serve everyone else but neglect their family. That was one of my greatest fears. So this is why to me it's like, man, it begins with my wife. And then it goes to my kids. Kiddos, siblings, it goes for you loving your brothers and your sisters. Again, husbands, the first and foremost goes to you loving your spouses. And we're not going to do this perfectly. And this is where there's grace and there's mercy. And this is where we can grow. And this is where the love of God and forgiveness and all that comes into our hearts. But this is our desire. So it begins in our own family. Secondly, it begins, the next place is the church. It's the church. Paul says in Galatians 6, do good, but first do good to the household of faith. Look to your neighbors in this building who you are sitting next to, who are part of this church. We're called to have the opportunity to do good to everyone, but especially to those in the household of faith. And let me tell you, the reason why a lot of you guys are here is because this is what we do really, really well. The, the crossing, you love one another really well. Everywhere, I love hearing stories from, from our life groups, from on Realm, everywhere for like, hey, I, have a, I just had a child, I need a baby chair. Boom, 10, 10 baby chairs, right? All the way to we've helped individuals two or three times in here raise up money for down payments on homes and everything in between. You guys love each other well. We've got to continue to do that. There's so many needs right here in this room where we need to meet one another. And then it filters out to your circles of influence and bond, the city, the country, and maybe even other countries. That's all good. I mean, let me give you some maybe some categories to think through. In this city, how about children? It's a great need. There's a lot of children that are in the, the foster adoption system that need mentoring, that need dads, that need moms, that need people to come around them and love on them and serve them. And again, we do this well here. It's a big emphasis here at the cross. And we have foster parents and adoptions and, and mentoring going on. But, but think about that. Think about the city of Fort Collins. Think about maybe even some friends of yours. Maybe you have some you know, single moms, single dads that have kids and they need, they need someone to come in and help them. How about the elderly? We've got, we got nursing homes all over here where, where they don't get visitors at all. We can come and just be an encouragement and sit and play cards and, and talk to them. And sure, you know, sometimes they, you know. I used to go preach at elderly's um, early on in ministry and I'd go there and 
I teach and, you know, we have 20 of them in there and 19 of them will fall asleep right in the beginning of my message, right? But that's all right. It's just you're there, your presence. Winter's coming up. We have, you know, needs to, 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 to you know, remove the snow from people's driveways, especially those that are elderly, the poor, the homeless. We have so many opportunities around us in this city, in this country. We have the Vine House here. The Hoffmans have bought this house and are, are, are ministering to, to single moms with addiction problems. And now we can rally around her and serve her. There's so many opportunities for us to be good neighbors. The question is, when you see the Nate, are you motivated by the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ that has been shown to you? And there's wisdom here. There's wisdom here. Let me, let me say this, because the thing isn't like you and I, we're supposed to meet every single need that we, we see. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's, that's impossible. You and, I, you and I are not to be good Samaritans to everyone, to every need. There's wisdom here. Like, let me use myself as an example. If, I, if I'm driving down the road and I see a car that's broken down, the hood is up and the guy's on the phone, I'm not the dude to stop to help the guy fix the car because I got zero mechanical skills, right? I would probably cause more pain and more sorrow, you know, if I stopped to help him. And so wisdom says, like, man, I'll pray for the next guy. Maybe he's a mechanic and he'll pull over to help him out. But if there's, I see someone there and needs help with a flat tire, I've changed a lot of flat tires. If I've seen someone whose battery or ran out of gas in the middle of the intersection, I'm parking the car, and I don't know how many cars I've helped push to the gas station. So you do use wisdom. But the question is, are you engaging? Are you being watchful? Are you being observant to those in your circles of influence and even in your own homes? And are you engaging them as a neighbor? I want to end with this story of this young man. Some of you guys know this story. Some of you guys are new that don't. But here's the picture of him. You know who that is? That's Caden. Every time. Our family, a number of years ago, literally took Caden and his mom off the streets via someone from the crossing who worked at a teller at a bank. This lady comes in, homeless lady with a check she's trying to cash. And uh, Leslie's like, this, this lady doesn't know what's going on. So we, you know, being a good neighbor, she asked, hey, don't worry about the check. What, what's going on with your life? And she said, she's homeless, living in, you know, drug-infested hotels, doing whatever she can do to, to provide for her little kid who was one years old. Well, Leslie called Rita, and that night put up in a hotel, and then the next day she came and stayed. Uh, both the mom and Caden stayed with us. He was about one years old. This kid was so traumatized by life out of the one-year-old. He could scale. It was incredible. He's like Spider-Man. He could scale like the cupboards and stuff. He would get in the trash and start eating trash just to survive. One years old. Didn't speak. Didn't have eye contact. So we brought him into our house. He stayed with us for about four years. And uh, by God's grace, we got to love him. Got to reunite him with his dad. He's now nine years old. Still stay in contact with him. But early on, we had a family meeting. Called a family meeting, us and our five kids. And we said, hey, this, this is what your mother and I want to do. We want to love and serve this homeless mom and this, this young child. We're going to bring him into our home. Are you okay with that? 
It's not going to be easy. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost our time. It's going to be inconvenient. You're going to have to give up your room. You might even have to babysit. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost us financially to add two more mouths to feed. But are you okay with it? And JT, teenager, said something along these lines. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what we're called to. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? This is what the gospel moves us, propels us to do. And Rhea and I were like, like, man, you actually listen to what dad says from the pulpit. <laughs> Parents, there's a, there's a lesson in there. There's a reason why we have children in this gathering to hear the gospel truths, to hear the same truths that you do, and then they're watching you. You're, his, you're their examples, and, the, and they're listening, and they're gathering, and they're, they're learning and growing. But this is what the gospel moves us to do. This is what Jesus is asking you and me to do to be a good neighbor. And so Jesus' call to you and me this morning is this. Be observant. Be watchful. Those in your circles of influence. Love God. And then go and do likewise and love your neighbor. Amen? Father, thank you for this story. Lord, it's a, it's, a, it's a story of grace. It's a story of truth. It's a story of the gospel. It's a story that you have called us to, but it's a story in which you have gone before us to show us the way on how to be a good Samaritan. And so, Lord, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your death. We thank you for you saving us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that hasn't bowed the knee to Christ Jesus, they've been, they've been running on that treadmill of works righteousness, of trying to earn something from you that they just can't. It never ends. Or that they would stop. They would see their need for a Savior. And unlike the lawyer, they would turn to you, repent of their sins, and trust in what you offer them. And that is a life of grace, of mercy, of peace through repentance and faith. And for those of us that have, Lord, I just pray the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit that leads, guides, and directs us would propel us to be good neighbors to those where we live, work, learn, and play in our circles of influence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.